Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts, so let's select a game and press start. Hello and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and I have another wonderful guest with me today. She's the co-host of the excellent Girls Gone Canon cast. I have Chloe with me. Chloe, how are you today? Hey, Kiefer. I'm doing so great. Thanks for having me. I am pumped to be on to talk to you about this game. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for asking. We've got a lot to cover today, but before we talk about video games, I did just want to have the people who don't have the pleasure of knowing you get to know you a little bit better. Uh, what do you do and what do you like? Wow, vast. That, that's a vast answer. So I'm going to plug through and give you what you really want. Um, I am a co-host of the Girls Gone Canon podcast, where we are covering the A Song of Ice and Fire series, POV chapter at a time. So we are doing one POV like Jon Snow or Daenerys at a time, uh, and then going on to the rest of the POVs, one each at a time. So right now we're on Victorian Greyjoy, which is a very wild ride. Uh, very fun, a basically very toxic, toxically masculine pirate. So tune in for that. We've also covered the His Dark Materials series, both the show and the book in full book series. And we are actually starting a new passion project where we're covering Sailor Moon Crystal right now. A uh, little, little off the deep end, but total passion project. We've been talking about doing it. So one season at a time monthly, we'll be releasing that up until the new series coming this summer on Netflix. That's fantastic. What made you settle on those three specific things to cover on your show? So my co-host Eliana and I fell in love in 2016, 2017 on the internet. We became BFFs uh, and we met through the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. And, you know, it's kind of cool to watch fandoms evolve. We've been both in the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom online since like 2013, 2014. And over time we got to meet and once we met, we kind of just realized, oh, we have, you know, we have similar but also very distinctly different thoughts about A Song of Ice and Fire, but we just really melded on it. So we started a podcast on that. We actually, I had another podcast called Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire History. Uh, it's a drunk Game of Thrones history kind of podcast. So I'd invite guests and we'd get drunk and recount different histories and tales from the series. And she and I did an episode of that. And we fell in love. And from there, we started that. And she, her childhood favorite series was His Dark Materials. I never read it. So she got me to read it. Ruined my life. Uh, great, though. You know, I only like media that makes me sad, I feel like. Or, you know, makes me feel something. I like to mm -hmm. feel. Yeah, I love feeling. So that was really a blast. And uh, it's kind of become a, it, it's like a drinking book club. You know, someone's probably drinking, one of us or someone listening to it. So almost like a little drinking book club. That's a great way of putting it. I kind of like that. And I really appreciate you opening up on your process for that because I get to talk about something broad like video games in general. And I kind of get a little scared, not for, but just because of like how specific something can be and committing to that for such a long time. It's like having like a monogamous relationship with a piece of media for a podcast and you have to worry about saying enough or not saying enough but it's, it seems to be rewarding it's ongoing you're still well into the books so i'm i'm excited that you have gotten so much out of that and his dark materials and uh sailor moon coming up so kudos to you thanks yeah we're uh right now it's a race who's gonna finish first george r, r. martin or us with the published <laughs> chapters you know so 
I'm rooting him on. I think he can do it. I hope it's him that beats us because there are a couple characters we still have left that we're like, do we want to really jump in without the rest of the books? That's a conflict. And I kind of want to hear your process on this because I'm not as deep into Game of Thrones. I haven't really watched the series and I've been meaning to read the books forever. Haven't gotten to them yet. It feels like I'm not I'm not pressed for time to get to them uh, on account of R.R. Martin's uh, output. But like as a person who like is making something and understands the art process a little bit, even if it's a completely different thing, there is a part of me that's kind of like, man, take your break. You've yeah. got your bag already. <laughs> yeah, I get it. And to be quite honest, when you do someday get into it, it, it'll come for you. It always does. You know, like sometime it will land for you and you'll you'll want to get into it. But it, it's a great series, but it's so complex. And he's the type of writer that is a gardener. He plants things and sometimes they grow. Those seeds grow and flourish into a gorgeous garden that he's going to harvest plots from. But sometimes they're unruly and they get weedy and he either moves on, etc. And there are some plots that because of time, he's running himself into a corner, I think. And it's a lot to work that out. And then also a lot to be a creative director on uh, TV shows and for other creative pursuits. And who are we to dictate what he does, right? Like that's his prerogative. Good for him. It's his art that he's making. You don't get to like dictate people's art, which is the best part about it. Art. Yeah, I I 100% agree. Uh, moving on to the subject of video games a little bit, as we know, no community likes to gatekeep more than gamers. So we have to check your gaming credentials real quick. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your gaming history, uh, who or what got you into it. What's your relationship been with it throughout your life and where you stand on it now? Let, let's hear about it. Okay. My uncle Matt, when I was a kid, the only mo- uncle on my mom's side, I'm an only child slash grandchild on at least that side, not an only grandchild on the other side very complicated. But uh, I was very much like the golden child that every Christmas, my cool Uncle Matt bought me the game system that was popular. And it ended, right? Because I got older and less cute. That's kind of what happens, linearly speaking. Uh, But he, I remember him buying me a Game Boy, black and white Game Boy, for the very first time. I can't tell you what age I was. I had to have been like probably four to six. My dad also bought a PS1 and brought it home one year. So I started my journey with games in the PS1 and Game Boy era. Pokemon was probably the first series I was very invested in as a child. I'm still kind of invested in it. Unfortunately, it still has me. It's still got its grip on my throat. Uh, But I spent plenty of hours playing Tomb Raider. Uh, Lots of Tomb Raider, in fact. Oh, God, so much Tomb Raider. And I had a really weird fascination with Pitfall 3D for a little bit. Yeah, um... I I think about that game. Sometimes it keeps me up. I'm like, man, somebody should remake that. Uh, It was really crazy. You know, you're going through the jungle. There's pits. You don't want to fall. I guess now you have Subway Surfer and stuff like that. But yeah, your temple runs and whatever. Yes, temple run. It it was very temple run before temple run. Uh, I moved on. My favorite my favorite gaming story was that I really wanted a PS2. I really wanted one. And I went on the Internet and I thought I was savvy. I had to have been like 12 or 13 and I told my mom listen I can get one for super cheap on eBay is it okay like can you buy it so I didn't really read the listing that it was for parts and I won't go into details on how my mom fixed the situation because it may or may not have been fraud and it doesn't matter because Circuit City's gone now but (laughs) my mom had to fix my very dumb decision because it was straight up just like a for parts and it was super cheap I don't know who would let that child why did they trust me with this yeah 
But I did get a real PS2, and that was where my Final Fantasy gaming really, uh, really kicked in. I didn't become a Final Fantasy gamer until PS2, and mm. that was that. That was life changing. I, I always liked RPGs. I like platformers and RPGs. I don't really do horror, or first person, or shooters. I'm, I can't do that. I like vibes. Very into yeah. vibes. I need a game to give me the right vibes. Uh, but Final Fantasy, I want to say I played FF8 first out of all the Final Fantasies. So maybe that's my issue and why I love it so much. I might have a little nostalgia bias for it. But yeah, I made my way there. And from there, I mean, again, I just play a lot of vibes games. I've been um, losing my life to Civ lately. Okay. Civ, Stardew Valley. Oh, God. Uh What's the other game I was playing very much recently? Uh, I play a lot of uh, a lot of strategy now and a lot of RPG and platformers still. Uh, really fun one I'm really recommending recently that I want you guys to try out if you're listening is Ali Ali World. It was the yeah. PS Plus game last month. Oh my god! Oh, I lost a week of my life. That was so fun. That it's really rock. fun. Yeah. For those that don't know, it has this art style that's like halfway between Bob's Burgers and Adventure Time, and it's this side-scrolling uh, skateboarding game that's just oozing with charm, has great little musical beats to it, uh, just has a very satisfying but simple gameplay loop. Highly recommending checking that out on uh, PlayStation Plus, and I think it might be on Game Pass too. Don't quote me on that, <laughs> but check it out. Definitely. Uh, it was a game. You know, I like that games are when they're rewarding, right? Like you like a game when it rewards you for playing uh, it's like doing a math problem that you actually can figure out how to do and you get it right. Like math sucks, but when you actually get it right or when you do something that equals and it works, it, it feels rewarding. Your brain goes ding. Thank you very much. And and I like games that make my brain go ding. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. That's what achievements are now. Kind of <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. They, they literally ding. Now, you've talked a lot about some video games that you like. You say you like RPGs. You obviously like the works of one George R.R. R. Martin. I'm curious, have you checked out Elden Ring yet? I have not. My co-host loves it. Uh, she really loved it. I haven't done it yet. I haven't gone for it yet, but I think I'll like it. I'm trying to get myself into Witcher still, and I still haven't really... Um, the stars haven't aligned. I also like have major ADHD, so the game really has to grip me. Otherwise, I just start doing four other things at the same time and drift off into space so i'm not ready to commit it's a yeah. commitment thing i think because i feel like once i get into it and once i understand it that's my life for like three months probably it i'm i'm right there with you i played both witcher 3 and uh elden ring and i have mm -hmm. severe adhd and they definitely grip me uh to the point that i watched all of the netflix series for the witcher and i've owned the books now um, so I'm, I'm hard in the paint for the, for the Witcher world oh, yeah. now. I've done everything, but go back and play the first two games <laughs> just because of the, I, I own them. I tried them mm -hmm. out way before Witcher three even came out and it, they didn't grip me the same way, but three incredible Elden ring has gripped me. Uh, I played both of those games for 130 hours plus Elden ring and Witcher three incredible, fantastic. Cannot okay. sell them enough. And trust me when I say based on what our mutual friend Manu has said, it's the DNA of uh, Martin all over it in terms of the interpersonal drama of one family, uh, the the motif of Beauty and the Beast popping in throughout. Yes. Throw in some uh, berserk for the manga on there, and uh, you got yourself a Miyazaki George R. R. Martin co cocktail. So highly recommend it. I might have to bite the bullet and do it soon. I might have to. I think in a couple weeks here, I have like four days that I don't have plans necessarily. Mm -hmm. So I might have plans necessarily. 
now that you say it, because I'm a, I'm a sucker for the the romanticism, the hero, the you know the plot. I love a good plot. I love a good. Mm-hmm. I love that. And George R. R. Martin does deliver that. I mean, Beauty and the Beast style. Some characters and plots in his story, uh, especially because he wrote for Beauty and the Beast, right? The TV show Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. But some of the characters and plots that he has in his books, when you get into them, are very Beauty and the Beast, very much. Okay. And then, of course, like subversions and flipping that idea on its head and. Very interesting. Hey, a game for a game. You got me to play today's game. If I get you to play Elden Ring, we'll call it even. (laughs) Um, All right. All right. (laughs) We'll see, though. But before we talk about this Final Fantasy, I did want to talk about Final Fantasy in general. You said that eight was your first. And this is the very first time my show has dedicated an episode to the Final Fantasy franchise, of which there are going on 16 mainline entries, not including the sequels like X2 and 13-2, and not counting the countless, countless, countless spinoffs. Uh, I think more than a few people will be surprised to see that 8 is the first Final Fantasy game we cover in detail on the show. Uh, We'll touch on why later, but before we get into 8 specifically, I do want to ask what your relationship with the franchise is like as a whole. So, pulling off the layer here, uh, not only did I love video games, but I spent a good era of my life going to like anime conventions and video game conventions with my friends. So, there's a really interesting relationship between the two that just like today, us sitting here saying, oh, you got to play this game, man. Come on, go play this game. Uh, you, you get around like-minded people that love video games that start to know you and understand how to suggest to you actually fun games that you would like, right? Like, it's different when somebody who doesn't know you is like, oh, you got to play this game. I'm obsessed with what does that do? But the human heart and the idea that, like, we bond with human nature and with one another really helps that. Like, I probably will play Elden Ring now. Thanks a lot. Thanks for yeah. letting me lose that 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 month or three of my life um (laughs) it'll be worth it but cons are kind of like a really weird melting pot of different people with different tastes and personalities and you get to know them and you start to want to get drawn to other games and then you bring in cosplay or like programming and events of meeting people and meeting the artists and it just makes you want to play more you know it's a little addictive in that and that like you get consumed in the lifestyle so i was cosplaying with friends throughout the late aughts in the early 2010s. Uh, and I still once in a while go to cons, but I'm, I'm calming down on that in my older age, my, my older golden years. I'm calming down on that a little bit and uh, doing more, more uh, meaningful hangs with my friends. But uh, so many different times, like being introduced to games in the halls, you get to play games in the vendor halls that have video games and such at conventions. And, a lot of my friends loved Final Fantasy, the very first group that I was hanging out with and that I was in with, and we would dress up and group cosplay together and all this stuff. It, it was cute. It's like a mini high school. Everything is, I guess, in life, but it was a mini high school. Uh, they got me into Final very Fantasy. Very full co, if you would have to say. Well, right. Like, I mean, think about it. Isn't everything, isn't every stage of our life just like mini weird social hierarchy competitions? Yeah. Of, like, you either tune in or out. I don't know. Whatever. What is a podcast but academia? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not here to talk theology with you. Like, we're not going to go Plato the cave on it today. But <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I played eight on my own. And then I met them and they got me into playing the rest of it. And and there's just these memories of like weekends of possibly underage drinking uh, where we'd all just be playing video games, you know, uh, laying around, eating popcorn and candy, playing video games, watching anime, the good days, the golden days. And after I played eight, I played six 
because that was the other fan favorite of their group. They really wanted me to get into six with them, mostly for some cosplay shenanigans. And I had a rule. I wasn't ever going to cosplay from something I had never played. It felt false. It felt wrong. Uh, I played a lot of Chrono Cross and Chrono Trigger around that time too. So kind of tied me into that entire RPG scene. But after I played eight, I played six and then I went up to seven. I was like, all right, I guess I'll try seven since everybody loves seven, which I don't get because seven, eight, nine. Just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I didn't make that joke, it wouldn't be worth it. Uh, yeah, I played seven. I think seven is great and it's really important and like kind of a pivotal game of all of the Final Fantasies, you know, because I mean, think how many people say to you, FF7, FF7, Cloud, iconic, right? Like everything yeah. about FF7 and the expanded story, you know, uh, whether we're talking before the pre-story and of course Crisis Core, or we're talking about all the other bits of it and the remake itself is gorgeous, if not heavy handedly a money grab. I, I after the After I did seven, I think I played nine was out by then. I played nine. I didn't play 10 for a long time, even though 10 is another huge fan favorite because of the emotional story. And it is a great game. I play it all the time. Uh, the, the soundtrack alone is banger. But four is my second favorite. Um, FF3 is really hard, really hard. Four is great. I really love four. It has a great story with the crystals. You got to go get the crystals, bring them back. You got some great characters. You have Rydia of the Mist, who rocks, and Edge, uh, the ninja, and of course, the Dark Knight, Cecil, and just amazing story recommend for it's like it, it argues for space with eight for me like yeah I, justice for four i love four that was the first final fantasy game i ever played specifically yes. the ds version of it so yes. which is I apparently even harder than the original fuck me but um yeah yeah, yeah. and after great. years rocks uh i don't know if you played after years but it really really rocks i, I have there's no legal years. way to access it right now so i haven't even though i've uh, kind of had the itch to go back to that world uh, it was like on everything until it wasn't, and yeah. now I just have to wait until it's back again. I was hoping something would have materialized with the uh, rem pixel yeah. remasters, but anyway, uh, you were saying, it, is that basically your your gist? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I started off on the couple of them, you know, I did the eight on my own, and then six because everyone said I had to, and then seven because also everyone said you had to, and then mm -hmm. from there I was like, oh no, I love this series because, again, I'm not a first person shooter like i used to do halo land parties at some point in the aughts with my roommates i remember and it was very fun especially when there were no expectations but some of those games are very high pressure people are very like you better be out there like murking killing shooting you're gonna get yelled at by your teammates and let everybody down i don't it's high pressure man i can't do that stuff i just want to like plant gardens and like answer questions yeah. all day you want to play stardew valley yeah. I really do. I spent like two hours playing it last night. So, <laughs> Love it. Probably the game I've probably sunk the most hours into, oh. just all my senior year of college, etc. Thank you for your uh, little uh, glimpse into the world of Final Fantasy through your eyes and talking to me about 4 for a little bit because, again, it feels underrated now. Uh, I which love 4. <laughs> 4 is great. I am a huge fan of 7. I kind of like it is a cash grab Final Fantasy 7 remake because anything with Final Fantasy 7 inherently is. But I do think on a meta textual level, it is directly interacting with that. And mm -hmm. the way that that story is going has me super excited in the same way like the Evangelion rebuilds do. Uh, yes. and just Yeah, just in terms of like the creator, not the creator, because uh, Namor was only one part of the original Final Fantasy 7, but sort of like 
these people going back to the kind of thing that became this huge multimedia franchise within the world of Final Fantasy itself and taking on the modern sensibilities of video games and also like agency of these people that we've kind of controlled as a fandom for a long time. I love that. And I hope that it really goes in a good direction because this is the most interesting stuff I've seen in an RPG recently. Not that RPGs have been slacking at all, but just in terms of having more on its mind than just the world itself. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, it's gorgeous and mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, it's an experience, especially for those that played it, you know, in the past and you're coming back to it. And it's uh, not only that, but the rewrites, right? Some of these new things that are being added in, some of this new context. I mean, Tifa, you know, got to be a real character already within the first what they've added already. They've really, I think, done a lot to, um, I mean, the whole game is like when you go back to the original, it's it's not as dimensional. But now when you sure. look at the remake, it's way more dimensional. I mean, all of the backstory with Jesse that that we get and how beautiful it plays out is gorgeous in the first. But I just don't know. There's going to be, what, five each parts, I think? I think it's is three. And then three? they had like okay. these two spinoffs because they just did the Crisis Core Crisis remake Core, under yes. that same engine. And I think there's something else coming out between all that. But yeah, three core games and then another multimedia franchise just within that remake mm-hmm. space. Yeah, because that's going to be like 300 something dollars and I'm going to spend it, unfortunately. But like at the end of the day, I'm like, wow, capitalism is great. The grind never stops. The grind never stops. And I, I will add the final thing I do love is uh, my my first and second cosplays were actually Renoa and Tifa. Oh, my very first and second ever. Yeah, I did Renoa's seed dress from the fireworks scene at the ball. Uh, that was my very first costume I made just because it was simple to make the dress and I didn't have the materials and money to make the duster yet, but I wanted to. And I did, I did. Mm-hmm. I was very determined. Uh, and then I did crisis core Tifa, which was really fun because who the hell wears cowgirl Tifa? No one. <laughs> that was awesome. It was just like, people were like, wait a second. Are you cowgirl Tifa? I'm like, yeah. And that was a blast. <laughs> that, sh- that sh- rocked. That was fun. Um, that was really, really fun costumes. No, that's the beauty of cosplay, trying to go as like niche and weird and personal with it as possible. So hell yeah to you. Love that. I love being able to recognize it. It makes me feel like I'm special. So (laughs) it ignites that nerdy young part of you. It gets you so excited. Yeah. Uh, Before we get into the main discussion, uh, are there any games that you're looking forward to playing stuff that is either already out or that is yet to come? Right now, uh, you know, the last few weeks, I really got into Civ as mentioned and i'm also a sims player in fact like i i thought about going for to discuss the sims with you instead of final yeah. fantasy but um I'm, i think i'm more excited about final fantasy because the sims is like that could be a total great expose tell all interesting meta conversation because ea wow uh lots of interesting ea stuff going on there and the the history and dramas of it but i play a lot of sims and sims 4 just released a new expansion pack that is going to absolutely thrill me and disappoint me and i can't wait to download it right now like i'm (laughs) i'm a a mod player i have to have mods in my game once i uh it, it takes one to two hours to update all your mods you know, if you're a mod player, like you have to sit there. I can't even play the game for two hours. And then I have to find out if I've broken my game or not and like test things, you know, and it just becomes um, a little much. So 
it's a task I have to plan for. I have to prep for. I need a whole day. It's like a self-care thing. You have to make sure you have time to download the new mods, update all the mods, delete the old, protect your save files, back that crap up, get the update and watch your crap break and then on and off crash the game for like four hours. <laughs> that's the video, that's the gaming experience t- spending a lot of time thinking about playing a video game uh yeah yeah you're always welcome to come back this isn't a one and done thing so if uh you want to ever talk about the sims i'd be happy to play uh, a proper sims game for the first time because i've never really done it i've played the my sims games weirdly enough i don't want to get into that but no. um the, <laughs> i never really played the core sim experience so i'm excited to huh. potentially do that you got me to play today's game i'd be happy to try another um okay. let me hit elden ring and we'll see what happens okay how about that yeah if you don't like elden ring i won't play the sims and if you do oh. like elden ring which you almost certainly will because you like rpgs and the, being blackmailed yeah. is this? i'm not not blackmailed i'm just saying i'm i'm <laughs> leverage i'm half joking <laughs> yeah. yeah i'll be back yeah. in a year for the sims You'll be back in <laughs> yeah. You'll be back in two years because it'll take you a while to get through Elden Ring. Um, I hope. I hope. Hope, but no. Yeah, open invitation there. Any other games you're looking forward to playing? Right now, not yet. That and Elden Ring, I guess. Um, hey. I, I'm. I, I guess Hades too is probably the other one I'm really excited for. The new Hades, and I love the episode you did on Hades. I listened to a good bit of it this weekend it's a really that's another addictive game that's one that gets the dopamine a flow in yeah one of my top 10 favorite video games of all time and i would say even if i'm taking in um the new zelda game into account i think mm. hades 2 is my most anticipated game coming out like and i love zelda is like more than any other franchise in the world so yeah that's where i stand on hades i think we see eye to eye there which is another yeah. thing that's making me pretty confident you like elden ring because our taste is lining up a bunch Final Fantasy awesome. 4, Hades, etc. I mean, those are really the only couple games you need, honestly. Yeah, I mean, they they take a they'll they'll take up a lot of your time. But before we talk about today's game, are there any other games that mean a lot to you that you haven't had the chance to shout out? No, you know, um we we've been through the ringer. I feel like you you've uh, heard me bear my video game brain. Mm-hmm. I have a really wicked Sims 3 game going right now in the background because I'm not willing to update my mods for the sims 4 right now that's what i'm doing right. i'm playing the sims 3 and then if that doesn't happen if i get bored of sims 3 maybe i'll play sims medieval and if okay. that bores me i might do a sims 2 game and get really wild and go old school and then that might bore me too so i might switch to stardew valley it's a whole process you know until i find the game that i can hook myself on for the evening very quickly what is your favorite sims game overall Ooh, it's really hard Sims 3 for gameplay. Sims 4 for the graphics. Sim and for the mod ability. I mean, mods saved that game. Uh, Sims 2 for the personalities, like the way the Sims actually interact and their personalities and like the making of the Sims. That's like they had the perfect Sim, in my opinion. And then Sims 1 for the wild ass crap that happens in it. Just Sims 1 for like, because the whole Sims 4 is boring. Nothing happens half the time. Like, but Sims 1, you could like all of a sudden have a genie appear on your lot and like cause chaos or like, I don't know. They were kind of wild. They didn't have as many regulations, I think, at that time. People weren't mm-hmm. like looking at it. It was also a little, they had like cage dancers and stuff. It was a little dirty. I loved that. I was like, good for you, Sims 1. They had yeah. some crazy assets. Pretty people were a lot hornier in video games because <laughs> there was yeah. a you know number one like 
the conversation of like responsibility in terms of the interactive world weren't quite on that level yet. And two, mm-hmm. since games were for such a niche audience, it was kind of like, how do we stand out? But no, I loved your answer because it is, it's a broad thing where like you're able to go through it pretty succinctly, which I appreciate, uh, not because like I got everything you're trying to say there. Mm-hmm. And also just because like you are able to express that like every game has something unique and special about it. It's hard to write it off. It's hard to write just uh, choose one because there's a lot in each of them. Like I redownloaded The Sims 2 last year, even though there's not a way to do that. And when I redownloaded it, I mean, I played it for like days straight, like just lost hours at a time because there were certain things that like the story progression, there isn't really a good story progression in it. It's a little clunky. You can't just age. You can age batches of Sims up at the same time, but you can't like people don't just age up and stuff and do stuff on their own. There's not as much autonomy for other Sims besides the one you control. So like it really sucks. But I played it for like two weeks straight nothing else because it had me that hooked even though it didn't progress in the way that I like to see it progress uh so that was kind of interesting to me I'm like wow that's how much fun I was having wow criminal it should be criminal (laughs) never criminalize fun as long as it's the good (laughs) I immediately backpedaling on that because some people would find crime to be fun um ethics (laughs) let's not talk we're not going into ethics right now we already shouted out Foucault um let's go Oh, one more thing. And I know I've said one more thing, like probably a million times, but you something that's just that out of post. No, no, I'm keeping it all. And I want people to know how many mistakes I make. One of my friends approached me recently uh, and said, what is the best Final Fantasy game to get into the franchise? And I'll give you my answer after you give me your answer. If somebody came to you and asked you that question, like, which one should I start with? What would you recommend? Nine or ten. Probably really? ten. Yeah, I I know that's like either either that or seven, I guess. But I know that's really late in the game to say 10. But I think that there's a certain appreciation that comes with Final Fantasy, right? So like if they're going to do the remake, maybe sure. But there's a certain nostalgia, I feel like that has to be at the root of wanting to play it sometimes. Because um, why would I play like why would I if I have the Final Fantasy games in my repertoire at home to play? Why would I choose three, four, five, six? or seven to play when I could play one of the newer games that was more beautiful. And yeah, that might be setting you up for failure, but like, who have you heard try to play FF10 and hate it? I mean, that that has a 100% ratio. It doesn't, it doesn't miss. It never misses. And it has all of the key fundamentals of what makes Final Fantasy so great. It has the score. It has mm-hmm. the art. It has the story, the plot, the sadness gets you. It has Yuna and Cloud. It has uh, love. It has great, you mean broad. You yeah. said, Did I say cloud? Oh my god, fake fangirl. Just thinking of blonde spiky boys all the time, you know? Yeah. yeah it has it has Yuna and Titus. Oh my god, it has Lulu and Waka. The better sub sub love plot, in my opinion. But yeah, it has all the great just I don't know, the great plot. And it's like it might not be the OG ones, but mm-hmm. I think it then becomes a gateway into everything else. I mean it has everything it needs. Yeah, I really like your answer, uh, especially since I haven't played 10 yet, even though I own uh, 10 and 10 2 on Switch <sighs> on physical media. I'm going to play it oh soon, my I God. promise. You have to. 10 I is know. really. It, yeah. and I would stand up for 10 2, and we can come back to that another day. Absolutely. We'll get back into it. Um, uh, the one I recommended was either 4 or 7. 4 I recommended because that's kind of like the trope. 
like the best in terms mm-hmm. of like explaining like the early tropes of what Final Fantasy are. It has like the crystals and the uh, double true. world thing. It has like the visual iconography that people broadly associate with Final Fantasy when they're thinking of all of the volumes of it. And it's just a really good game on its own. Um, you don't really have to work through like the Jenga one or two and then like, but it also feels like it's higher enough in people's rankings that it's not like one of the more, oh, who are these characters? Like, I think enough people probably know who Cecil and Kane Highwind are. So I recommend either that one or seven just because of the zeitgeisty nature of it. And also it's pretty high in my estimation on the Final Fantasy games that I've played. Um, It's pretty all encompassing. It's the stuff that people are probably going to reference the most. And it's popular for a reason and it's worth checking out. And especially since uh, there's the pixel remaster of four and it's relatively accessible and the seven, I mean, not the remake of seven, don't play that unless you play the original yeah. first, but uh, the sevens that are currently available on consoles, like uh, the remaster quote unquote yeah. is the quality of life improvements make going through the more difficult parts of an older game easier, which we'll get into when we talk about eight. But yeah, so those were my recommendations, but your recommendations are, Awesome, too. I guess there's not really a worse way to start from the series. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, seven would be the other one I'd recommend. I wouldn't usually say four, but you might have just sold me on it because I love it so much. Already. It was my first. <laughs> yeah, I I have. I think I have it for Switch, actually. Is that a thing? Mm-hmm. Do I have it for Switch? Yeah. Uh, I really love it, though, like especially structurally, going back to what you said about like the story and about some of these uh repeating motifs in the story that come back up you know the characters that you meet the npcs you're going to meet in every final fantasy game getting some of those in jokes that you might miss out on with the sids for example uh four is actually a great intro yeah i I would say so between the two of us you have a great place to start if you're not super familiar with the franchise but without further ado we want to get into a very interesting entry in the final fantasy franchise one that means a lot to a lot of people and one that kind of stands out among a franchise with dozens upon dozens of games as one of its own kind. We are going to talk today about Final Fantasy VIII. a big drink of water here. Mm. Final Fantasy VIII was developed and published by the Japanese studio Square, now known as Square Enix after a series of mergers and acquisitions in the years since. The game was directed by Yoshinori Kitase, who also directed Final Fantasy VI, VII, and X, as well as Chrono Trigger, one of my favorite games of all time. The music was composed by Nobuo U... Nobuo Uematsu, the main composer of the Final Fantasy series up to this point, Uematsu worked at Square from 1985 to 2004 and is now a freelancer who occasionally returns to the Final Fantasy franchise. Perhaps the two most notable tracks he composed for this game are the Latin choral track Liberi Fatali, that plays during the game's intro, and Eyes on Me, which is sung by the famous Hong Kong singer Fei Wong, and the lyrics are performed in English. Character and monster designs were done by Tetsuya Nomura and Yusuke Naora. Uh, who was the art director for this game. The graphical style is similar to that of Final Fantasy VII's with 3D models on pre-rendered backgrounds, but because of the graphical enhancements, uh, the character models are proportioned more realistically. Uh, There are also more full-motion video cutscenes than in Final Fantasy VII, roughly 20 more minutes of them, in fact. There's over an hour of full-motion video cutscenes alone in this game. 
As for the story, very briefly going over it, Final Fantasy VII is set in a fantastical world that most closely resembles modern-day Europe with some futuristic flourishes. Eight. You said seven. Oh. Ooh, you my bad. Chloe. You pulled a Chloe fake fangirl. I, wow. I Sorry. <laughs> Uh, as Final Fantasy VIII is set in a f- fantastical world that most closely resembles modern-day Europe with some futuristic flourishes in this world, an academy called Balam Garden trains orphaned teenagers to become members of Seed, battle-hardened mercenaries for hire for either civilian or military use. What makes Seed stand out from typical mercenaries is that they specialize in the use of magic via Guardian Force, aka GF, summons. In Final Fantasy VIII, only humans with Junction Guardian Forces can wield magic unless they are a sorceress. One of these students is Squall Leonhardt, a 17-year-old loner with no close friends. Recently scarred after a sparring match with his rival Cypher, uh, or Cypher. Uh, this game doesn't have... I go uh, Cypher. I Cypher. go Cypher. I just say it because his name is spelled exactly like mine, but with an S instead of a K. So I feel like either works. Cypher. I like C- it. Cypher. Hardly Noah. Uh, at a graduation party held by Balam Garden... Squall meets Renoa Hartlily, the opposite of him in virtually every meaningful way. She is an outgoing and outspoken woman who convinces Squall to dance with her. Turns out Renoa is hiring seed members to help her resistance force fight an occupation from an opposing force, which ends up being part of a bigger war being spurred by the evil sorceress Adea, which leads Squall, his squadmates, and Renoa being roped into carrying out an assassination attempt on her. Shenanigans ensue. Much, much stranger shenanigans. Uh, time and space kinds of shenanigans. Yes. <laughs> it gets weird. Doesn't it, gets it get very weird? So weird. I think that's just vaguely disc one alone in a four disc game. Uh, the gameplay of Final Fantasy VIII has the same presentation as traditional Final Fantasy games with a world map, a field map, and a battle screen. But the mechanics for battle and progression have significantly changed from the formula. The active time battle standards the series is still there where characters have to wait a set amount of time to perform a specific action but the way magic armor and accessories as well as weapons have been radically altered from the rpg formula Uh, this is where final fantasy 8 has gained the reputation that makes it stand out from other final fantasy games earlier i mentioned that seed uses guardian forces to wield magic Uh, this affects the gameplay by having you assign a summon to each member of your party that lets you use a powerful magic attack and also gives you the option to draw magic from other sources mainly other enemies to use in limited quantities so for example rather than using five magic points to cast thunder you have a limited number of thunders you can cast unless you draw more from other sources and rather than using armor you equip spells to your stats like strength or vitality to make your character stronger or have more health for example equipping a healing spell like cure or regen to your vitality stat will make your character have significantly more hp than if you equipped a damage spell like fire or blizzard. Uh, Leveling up has also changed enemies' scale with your level in this game, another notable departure. So leveling up too quickly is discouraged, and it can often be better to run away from random encounters than to power through them in some instances. Uh, You mainly want to focus on making your assigned GFs more powerful so that they gain better skills and you can leverage them in a fight. It's all much, much more complex than a standard traditional RPG, I can't explain all the changes in the best detail, but understanding and mastering the system can take a while. But once you get a hold on it, it can be deeply rewarding and satisfying, at least to me. Uh, We'll talk more about the gameplay once we get into the main discussion, but let's just keep going. Final Fantasy VIII was released on PlayStation in 1999. In fact, its North American launch was on September 9th, 1999, or 9999. 
which coincided with the launch of the Sega Dreamcast launch in North America. Uh, other games released in 1999 include System Shock 2, Planescape Torment, Unreal Tournament, Super Smash Bros., Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, Resident Evil 3 Nemesis, Ape Escape, Silent Hill, Crash Team Racing, and Gran Turismo 2. Chloe, did you play any of these games at the time? I think I played Turismo. I'm thinking. I, I think I did, because I played a lot of, like, I played a lot through games like that. I know I played a lot of car games at one point. I had an era. We don't have to go deep into it. But <laughs> I just remember playing a lot of driving games. So it right. sounds familiar. Yeah, I played the Gran Turismo games, and I played Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, Super Smash Brothers, yeah. and... I played Ape Escape. I actually recently, oops, I recently went back to Ape Escape because it's on the um, premium tier on the PlayStation Plus. Okay. It holds up pretty well. Like it's a little esoteric in some ways, but I actually had a pretty good time going back to it. Great soundtrack. I did play Tony Hawk. Uh, I did not play Ape Escape though. I did not. Worth checking out. And it's short. You don't have to dedicate 100 hours to helping these monkeys get back in their (laughs) hold or whatever. (laughs) Sounds good. I'm in. Yeah, it was a stacked year for video games is the point. Uh, What ultimately made you settle on Final Fantasy VIII above all other games you could have discussed? There's a certain feeling in the Final Fantasy fandom that like everyone has a favorite, right? You all your first Final Fantasy, as you and I have discussed, like everyone has a first, everyone has a favorite. They aren't always, uh, you know, hand in hand, the same thing. They don't have to be the same thing. But often, Often, your first is your favorite, right? You, you have formed a very specific bond with that Final Fantasy game. And I feel that 8 does not get the recognition nor love that it deserves. I think there mm-hmm. are parts of the game that people will do respect, but then there are parts of the game that maybe necessarily kind of turn people off to it, right? Like the card game that we will go into is probably not a favorite of many people's. Um, I don't mind it. It's fine. But a lot of people hate on this game so much for that. Uh, The story gets a little wacky. So personally, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, and I'm also a huge A Song of Ice and Fire fan. So as you're reading this description, I'm like, ah, of course, that's why I love this. It has timey-wimey time travel stuff. It has the the romances, right, of uh, very... You have Squall and Renoa, of course, and then you have some of these sub-romances happening across the cast that we'll talk about today. It's very character-driven. Final Fantasy VII is also pretty character-driven in most things, but I feel like it's also very event-driven. And in FF8, you could just spend time with the characters and getting to know their their, their stories back and forth are very nice. Even Irvine, right? Like, who cares about Irvine? I kind of <laughs> liked the guy. I kind of liked the guy after playing this game a few times. I chose 8 because I just don't think it gets a good standing fight. You know, I don't know a lot of people that would stand up and proudly declare that they love Final Fantasy VIII, and that, ha- that has to be me today, apparently. So I'm going to be like that Norman Rockwell painting and the, the guy standing up in the pew and being like, hey, I also like Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even like the, the timber plot, right? The timber owls plot is so cool because it also brings that political uh, forces and corruption and evil and fighting for what's right. I mean, even someone that you think is an antagonist like Cypher slash Cypher, uh, he, he, I feel bad for the guy, right? You sympathize for the position he gets put in, where, like, I think a lot of people uh, would overlook it. He, he even provides some very, some depth. And it is the characters, right? Like, the characters are what I love. I love Renoa. I love Squall. I love Squall because he is like, move over. You've met Heathcliff. You've met Hamlet. But here comes Squall. Here comes Cypher, right? Like, they're both very Byronic. 
uh, they both, in a way, they're like, they have that whole, I am incapable of love or only an impossible love and I suffer inside and they're very solitary. They can't like emote. They're like mm-hmm. giant, they're like giant man children that have been turned into accidental soldiers. Plot twist, very messed up, right? Uh, War makes monsters of us all is really a big theme throughout all of it, especially when it comes to the big villain with Adea. Then you also have that subplot, right? You have uh, the background story for Lacuna. You know, there, there's a, a lot of, in A Song of Ice and Fire, for example, for one of the main characters, Jon Snow, his story of his birth and his parentage and his history becomes a big topic of contention throughout the entire series, throughout the fandom, still today. Uh, there is one answer to it. I won't say that right now on this podcast in case people are wanting to find out for themselves. However, it's been an answer on the internet for a very long time. Listen and- to Girls Gone Cast for more information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Girls Gone Canon, we will uh, break it down for you. But it's very obviously heavily implied that Squall is Laguna's child, right? That Rain was pregnant and after her death, the baby and Eleni are taken to Adea's orphanage where Squall grew up. And here we are now in our story, a big major time loop of the story. And that's what's happening. And now we have to stop Idea. It, it's great how you weave the past together with the present with this game. It, it's seamless, right? It's confusing at first. And then once you play through it, you're like, aha, I see. We're weaving together two stories that tell the same story to get to a new end. It's just really beautiful. It's like poetry. So good. It is so good. I really like the interpersonal dynamics of this game a lot. Even if people want to dunk on, and it's not like a something that I've seen people dunk on, but like even if people are a bit confused by the, uh, the time of it all. I do think mm-hmm. that the interpersonal stuff is where this game is able to shine. Like with the Laguna stuff, especially is where a lot of the great emotional beats will land and really recontextualize your relationship with the characters in the present, especially uh, Rinoa and Squall. Yes. So yeah, I do. I do agree with you that there's like a very interesting story and a very interesting dynamic in there. And it is a very ambitious game, not only in terms of what it's trying to do narratively, but especially visually, because at mm-hmm. this time, it was, there was a very compelling case that this was one of the best looking video games ever made at the time of its release. That it was a massive, massive epic game and it had to be fit on the four discs on the PlayStation one and just had all of these captivating uh, cutscenes and the art design, even if the graphics haven't 100% held up, the visual design is still very coherent and very good. So there is a lot to love about this game. So I'm, I'm glad that this uh, you gave me the opportunity to play it and talk about it for the show. Yeah. And you played the remaster, right? The HD. Uh, we'll get into or it digital. in just a second. Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. There's something about the art that even uh, the remaster is great, but it isn't that much different and not in a bad way. It just, it is what it is. There's, you can only do so much with what you have, right? Without wiping and creating a new. So I get that. And while I would love for them to do the whole FF7 remake on it, oh my God, if that ever happened for me, it would be insane. If I ever got an <laughs> FF8 remake, I'm, you know, I've suffered through, through a few things the last few years and I'm like, FF, FF8 remake, please. FF8 yeah. remake. Uh, but there's only so much you can really remaster to your points of, you know, what they were able to do at the time. And it's still beautiful. I mean, it's very beautiful, but it's not that much better than the original, except for really just some of the remastered scenes are better. The backgrounds are kind of funny, but they're yeah. fine. They're, they're funny, but they're fine. They're funny, but they're fine. Uh, yeah. Speaking to the remaster, I do want to sort of use this opportunity to jump into a segment that we do every episode called No Country for Old Games. 
Video game preservation means a great deal to me, and one of the goals of this podcast is to bring attention to the issue of making older games readily available for those who wish to play them. Games like Final Fantasy VIII mean a great deal to people, not just me and you, and I believe they should be archived and preserved for all time. So we're going to take a look at this game's availability and rate it on a scale of A to ARG, and ARG is me expressing how hard it is to get a game and being really frustrated about it and is in no way me advocating for piracy whatsoever. That's illegal, yada, yada, yada. Um, <sighs> redacted. Uh, Final Fantasy VIII was originally released on the PlayStation 1 in 1999. But when you, Chloe, uh, get the urge to replay this game, how do you do it? It used to be that I played it on my PS2. Uh, however, I'm now playing it on... Well, so I have three different saves. I have a PS2 version somewhere in storage that I have not pulled back out. I have a PS4 save and I have a Switch save. So <laughs> I kind of alternate between that. I like having, I don't know, it, it's hard for me. I like having a game across all platforms if I can. And it was on sale. Oh my God, I think it was like $20 on sale or something for Nintendo and I had to grab it. All right. I'm like, why not grab it across my platforms? But it's funny because some games that come out on platform, I don't play on PC. Not all. Like there are some games I'll cross play. Like I'll play Stardew on four different platforms. Again, game's only $15. Everyone Same. should have it. Same. Yeah, I have it for everything. I have like eight farms that I visit fairly. Honestly, I fairly visit most of these farms. I split my time between like all of them. I don't know how. Uh, I'm a busy woman. I'm very employed. <laughs> but FF8, I, I love to play it on PS2. But I just don't anymore. You know, I just don't. I play it on my PS4 probably the most and then Switch second most. Yeah. So going over the availability of... First of all, thank you for going over that because you're really emphasizing how there's so many different ways you can play it. Yeah. Going over the availability of this game over the last 24 years since its original release. This game originally came out on the PlayStation 1. It was made for the PlayStation 1 in 1999. Uh, it was since released to the PC in 2000. Uh, though the port was generally considered inferior to the original version. Uh, a remastered version was released for the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC in 2019. Uh, this version was also ported to iOS and Android devices in 2021. Before this, there was a re-release on the PlayStation 3 that was functionally the same as uh, the PlayStation 1 version with a few minor differences. Uh, but this remastered version released for PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC is generally the one that is most readily available now. It was released for those on 2019 and then also ported to iOS and Android devices in 2021. So lots of ways you can play it. It is a mostly digital-only release, but a physical version can be purchased on the Nintendo Switch, sometimes in a bundle with uh, other Final Fantasy games. I believe that there is one that is also with seven. This remaster is generally considered to be the best way to play the game today. The music, the aspect ratio, the backgrounds, and the FMV cutscenes are untouched, so it is very much in its original form, except it offers many quality of life improvements over the original, including the ability to play the game in three times speed, which can be very beneficial for people who are going through uh, longer stretches of the game or are doing something repetitive like doing a grinding uh, for draws or battles or uh, building your AP points because there's so many things that you have to level up or collect throughout the game. Uh, you're also able to turn off random encounters if you're trying to do a play where you're not uh, running into enemies or trying to accrue too much experience because that can be 
uh, detrimental depending on how you're playing the game. And the battle assist booster that maxes out your health, your ATB bars and limit breaks. And this is probably the best way for you to play the game if you're doing this for a purely narrative, interactive experience and you're not trying to focus too hard on strategy and uh, grinding. The character models in this version are enhanced from the original. This was the version that I played on the PlayStation 5. Uh, this remastered version of the game can be purchased for about $20 on all things if there isn't a sale. So like you said, uh, it's a very reasonably priced game considering its uh, presence. So this is a game that used to retail for full price. Now you can buy it for $20. I think that's fair for a 40 hour long RPG. Uh, but if you have the PlayStation Plus subscription at extra tier or higher, like I do, you can download and play this game for free, which I did. Uh, and it is still on my console right now. Yeah, the biggest difference really is it, it's a straight port. You know, like it, there isn't a lot different. Uh, the one potential is that the backgrounds are the original backgrounds and the models are high resolution. So it can be a little jarring because it, it's cool. They look nice. They look smooth. But the backgrounds being the original backgrounds, it, it's a little messy. So it, it's not yeah. that much different. I do think some of the cutscenes look a lot nicer and I feel like there's a little change in grading on some of them, but uh, I haven't been able to pinpoint exactly what, but just the lighting looks a little bit different. And that could also just be my TV. This is talking about the remaster. Yeah. The remaster. Yeah. I wonder if that is maybe a difference between paying, playing it on a CRT versus an HD or higher resolution TV. I play it on a projector. Oh yeah. <laughs> hew, 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 hew. <laughs> yeah. No, great, great thing. Though. Like you said, like the one thing is like the character model can be a bit jarring against the uh, backgrounds uh, because you can't, they didn't retexture the backgrounds because they're pre-rendered and that yes. can make the jumps from FMV, FMV to back to your character model being controlled a little bit more jarring than it was seamless in the uh, original. Everybody talks about like the opening where you have like that pan across the garden and it just switches seamlessly from the gameplay engine to the cutscene engine. Little moments like that are kind of lost in the remaster because the character models have been improved. But for the most part, it still remains uh, an incredible experience and the visual design is still there. So it still looks good, even if it can be a little jarring in very specific places. Yeah, and there is notably like it's still clunky in some areas because that's literally how the game what like that's all the game could be at its time that was the peak of what was available in creating like developing games and in fact at its time it was kind of actually pretty advanced youngsters yeah. listening pretty advanced <laughs> so i think you have to go into it knowing that you're going to have clunky moments like where you know it doesn't quite catch up as you're moving or where you have a couple funky like you're in the ui you're going to choose something and it freezes up for a moment and then lets you click after a moment you're going to have some of that yeah, and but uh, definitely the quality of life upgrades help offset some of the jank. Yes. But no, I'm totally comfortable giving this game an A for availability. It can be played on every modern console out right now. Uh, a physical version is available on at least one of them, it being the Switch. And you can even play this game on your phone. So I'm, yeah, totally comfortable giving this an A. This is They've done a really good job making this game available, even if it doesn't quite have the same like reputation that 7 and 9 have. I'm glad that this game got an official remaster, even if it doesn't get the official remake treatment that Seven gets. I was surprised, honestly. I, I was actually surprised. I figured that it would just get passed over, but they got me. Yeah. They got me. That's the thing. Like Seven didn't get a remaster. It just got like those quality of life 
boosters. It didn't actually get mm -hmm. like enhanced models, but on the other hand, it did get a full on remake. So what do I know? Um, <laughs> but that somebody paid attention to Aiden up to like go back through and make these changes. So thank you persons who cared enough to actually take care of eight. It's secretly me just wearing like a trench coat. Yeah, it was you me. were secretly a worker at Square Enix, the sole person looking out for Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> They'll never know. They'll, They'll never, never know. know. Never the people know. will never know what I gave to them. <laughs> the hero we needed. <laughs> Do you like ghosts? What about monsters or haunted houses? Evil furniture stores? Cannibalism? Doppelgangers? Childhood mysteries that involve a strange cult or a scary clown? If you answered yes to any of the above, you may be eligible to become a patron at the Dead Letter Society's Library of Terrors. Dead Letter Society is a book club podcast about horror, mysteries, thrillers, and all genre of things that go bump in the night. Every episode, me, Marn, and my wife Alyssa pick a book from our Library of Terrors to read, then come together to discuss it live on air. Which characters do we get too attached to? What plot twist shocked us? Which scares fell flat and which had us jumping out of our seats in anxiety? Which character deaths made us lie down on the floor in anguish? You'll just have to join us here in the Library of Terrors to find out. Dead Letter Society is a proud part of the Moonshot Network. You can find us on Twitter at Dead Letter Pod, and you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon at the next meeting of the Society. Final Fantasy VIII was released to critical acclaim. The original PlayStation version holds a 90% out of 100 on Metacritic. Uh, it is the fourth best-selling game on the original PlayStation, selling over 8.6 million units. For those curious, Gran Turismo was number one, Final Fantasy VII was number two, Gran Turismo II was number three, which means Final Fantasy VIII was the fourth best-selling game on one of the most successful consoles of all time. What a legacy to leave behind. But we're not here to reduce the legacy of Final Fantasy no. VIII to statistics or Meta. sales numbers or Metacritic. We're here to talk about its impact <laughs> on the people who actually played the game. Without further ado, Chloe, let's talk about what this game means to you. And I'll start by asking, what is something you love about Final Fantasy VIII that you wish more games would do? Uh, I actually love the junction gameplay. Junctioning your GF, which I have to say... If they had memes in FF8, they would be really confused all the time. They'd be like, my GF did what? Uh, <laughs> imagine TikTok in FF8. Oh, God. The junctioning system is incredible because it rewards you and can punish you simultaneously for choosing to use your mana to junction it to new spells, right? Uh, like, you can junction life to some of your HP spells. And when you do that, if you use that, or if it gets used against you, it can actually deduct from your life and suddenly you're like, oh, my HP has gone down 300 and I can't get more than 300 now. How did that happen to me? Oh no, I had my Cura and my life junctioned <laughs> incorrectly or, or correctly, worse. Um, I think it's just like a really impeccable way to keep people on their seats because especially as you get some of these deeper mana, like you have like the Berserk or like Death and Pain, you can really become powerful in this game, even by accident. Uh, there are a couple spells that you don't want to let the auto junction happen. You want to junction it because it might not choose the correct stuff for you. So, like, I don't know, like uh, like your, your strength attack or your strength defenses, like, you want to make sure you don't auto junction those a lot of the times because the game might not give you what's actually 
important to junction to them to increase your strength and your defense. It might screw you over and use something not helpful. But the auto junction also just like works great. Even other than those two spells, you're pretty much, you're free. You just go click, click. I don't know what I'm doing. I'll figure it out eventually. Auto junction. (laughs) But it teaches you that way. It tells you like, okay, so this actually is good to do. So let me try something on my own. And you can play around with it and function with it. And it makes you really powerful though. I I mean, the new quality of life cheats, making it so, you know, you can get through a few battles without necessarily getting murdered out in the field. It's good. You need that phase of understanding what you're doing and playing around. And it lets you test things like the junction strategy out deeper. And I think that's probably something they wanted to allow for because I think there were some complaints from fans that didn't understand the junctioning system. The in-game tutorial is helpful-ish, but also not necessarily, right? Like it, it only goes to an extent. And then after it teaches you the one and a half times, it says, go off. Good luck. Mm hmm. Well, I'll talk about more about this game's tutorial when we are talking about uh, things this game could do better. But yeah, no, I mean, the thing with like the junction system is that it is genuinely fascinating. My issue is that the game doesn't do the best job of onboarding you to it. Mm-hmm. But the thing about life now is that we have the internet generally available to us constantly. So if you want to get the most out of the junction system, I would just highly advise you to use a guide. In a game like this, there's literally zero shame to using a guide. They used to sell strategy guides for money, and now they're available for free. The gatekeeping has only like decreased in terms of helping you get through video games. Do not feel ashamed for doing what people used to pay 20 plus dollars to learn how to do. I have to. Yeah. I mean, I get lost. I'll like forget what the hell I was doing. I'll come back to it after like not playing it for a year and I'll be like, what was I doing? And you have to figure out what your next thing is because there's not necessarily like a huge world map that says, here's your quest, track your quest, go do your quest. That's not a thing. Yeah, no. So if you want to min-max the game or just like get some general advice on how to use junctioning to the best of you and your party's ability, please use it. And I think that you would get a lot out of this experience. But if you are unwilling to learn or you don't want to use the resources of the internet, then it's going to be a little bit harder for you to get through this game because the game does kind of count on you to use that for a lot of um, bosses. And there are some bosses that are basically kind of vibe checks to make sure that you're learning about the junction system. But I do think it's a very unique way of going about this game because this is the first really big swing that the Final Fantasy mainline series has made in a while in terms of mixing up the gameplay system. And while they didn't keep it around, uh, it is definitely worthwhile that they did something new and i'm i admire them for trying something new yeah they wanted to do a big change i think because they didn't want it just to be ff7 all over again right because ff7 was huge i mean at its time and now it it was a huge peak for final fantasy that everybody has played ff7 i mean when it came out i remember in school that's all anyone wanted to go home and do no one wanted to be at school they wanted to go home and play ff7 (laughs) uh And to follow that up, you have to do something big. And I don't think that this went the way they hoped it would as far as something big. However, I love it. Like, I think it's a way to challenge me is why I really like it, because it is kind of challenging at first. But once you get the hang of it, it's fun. I wish I think uh, being able to affect those changes, uh, Pokemon's doing a really good job of it and adding a lot of new gameplay where you can kind of up your Pokemon in the recent incarnations of it and kind of gives you a little more control because I think some of the the flatline stuff in Final Fantasy can be that you're just like pressing attack and waiting to get your limit break or waiting, you know, to, to be able to go off on something. And 
it gives you a way to affect the change. Right. It's it's a deep system. And I know that some people that's like being shoved into the uh, the deep end of a pool uh, rather than like having something that you can optionally use to maximize your experience, uh, which is probably what people want more out of an RPG. For example, you mentioned Pokemon. The EV IVs never really come up unless you're doing a lot of post game material or you're playing against other people in multiplayer. But you can generally get to the main game playing it completely unaware of like how IVs and EVs work. But in this game, you do need to have a pretty good understanding of the junction system by at least the halfway to late game point. You, you, you cannot just count on luck getting you through these scenarios. So great, great comparison using Pokemon, but that is also sort of like a, uh, you, you got, you got to learn, you got to learn. Yeah. Well, and that's why the GFs are so fun, right? Mm. I really like the GFs as well. And I'd say that's another thing that really, uh, I don't know. I'd f- and that's probably why I think of it like Pokemon in a way, because in a way, your GF and the different points that it gets and the different moves you unlock with it, that becomes you have to find the best Pokemon in the moment to use, right? Like you need to say, okay, who should I have junction to who? This GF, like, should I be putting Shiva on Renoa today or Kesis? Who's going to affect the best change? Who has what mana? Do I need to go in and change where my mana is and change what spells everyone can do? There's a lot that goes into going before a battle and going before the next big boss. And realistically, you don't know what's coming is the other hard part. So you have to prepare and have something to cover a little bit of everything. Yeah, you, gotta be, you may be having to prepare to lose at least the first time just to suss out what the boss is up to and the rhythms of it. But that's yeah. kind of been RPGs for especially or late 80s, early 90s RPGs. Yes. That's kind of what they were always meant to do. They were never meant to be one and done experiences. It's strategy. Be prepared to be patient. Be prepared to sh- strategize. If you are not used to the uh, the rhythms of an older RPG, it may be a bit much to get into, but I, I, mm-hmm. I think it's worth it to learn. And there's lots of resources that are able to help you. Something I love about this game, and I've talked about this in multiple episodes, I love card games and RPGs. Uh, they can enrich an experience and add countless hours to them. I love Pazak in Knights of the Old Republic. I love Gwent in The Witcher 3. And I can now say that I love Triple Triad in Final Fantasy VIII. I know it's not for everybody. You mentioned it earlier as kind of a, uh, a sticking point for some people. But once I figured out how Triple Triad worked, I, I could not stop. And I was pressing the, the I think it's Square. That's like the... Our, Triple triad, yes. I think that kind of button, like every NPC, <laughs> you're like, oh, oh yeah, I play. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> um, uh, and I would play it and I, I quite enjoy it. It's uh, Once you get into it, it's great. I had a very frustrating, and maybe this will tie into some of our other points because this is something that I could do without personally of the game, but it's not horrible. Like it was fine. It's just something that I was like, oh man, this one made me mad. And it kind of ties into what you're saying about the guides that we're going to talk about that aren't really there so much is that this one throws you in and because there isn't a list of tasks that you have to complete that tells you what you're supposed to be doing and you got to kind of keep it in your head or get lost on the open map for the rest of your life because uh, that can happen um i the first few times not like when i was a kid when i played i don't even remember what I, that much of it when i was a kid kid i had to be like seven uh but as i played it as a teenager I remember I would start a new game and I couldn't find the office to get the deck of cards or I didn't do the right thing to trigger getting the deck of cards from the garden. And so I went through like the whole first thing and I would get these tasks to do stuff with cards and they'd be like, you can't right now. Come back later once you have cards. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? Uh, It 
it was very angering. And that's where Google Guides would have really come in handy. I think I had a walkthrough book, though. I think that's how I I think that's how I got through it, because it was frustrating for me uh, once you figure out. Like, I mean, I lost a lot of good cards yeah. because I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, bye, Ifrit. Bye, Shiva. I lost your cards. No, there were definitely a lot of like, let me do a soft save, and then I'm going to play this person. So if I lose my best card, it's not gone forever. And that's the other weird thing. Uh, this game has so many little things you need to know. And I'm going to like, we'll, we'll talk about these complaints in a moment to go into it. But let me just say broadly now that I like Triple Triad, but also I hate a lot of things this game does with Triple Triad. We'll, we'll get back to it, though. While we're still talking about things that we love about this game, I do want to shout out Nobuo Uematsu's phenomenal score for this game. It's probably one of the very best he's done for any Final Fantasy game. While playing yes. through this game uh, in my living room on my big 4K TV, my roommate, Avery, who's been on the show to talk about Pokemon Emerald, actually, he would occasionally be in the room with me and he'd say, he said two things that I made a point of writing down for my notes for this episode. The first was, the music for this game is incredible. And he's not a huge gamer. If, he, if something like that sticks out to him, it's definitely worth saying. And he's absolutely right. The, the music is incredible. Not even just like the big two ones that I pointed out earlier for the opening and the, the Fei Wong song, Eyes on Me. Just like across the board, great music. The Laguna battle theme is yes. probably one of the most iconic battle uh, songs in like any RPG to me that I've played. Yeah. That's not even like the main battle theme for the game. It's just like, here's another battle theme that I wrote if you want to hear some kick-ass shit. Thank you, Uematsu-san. I really appreciate that. Yeah, man with the machine gun. Um, even some of like the kind of kitschier, like just background kind of songs like the Timber Owls or like uh, Blue Fields from the very beginning. Kind of those like dreamy songs in the background are great. And then you have songs like Succession of Witches, which is so good. Uh, there's a lot of really hardcore kind of like almost metal versus also you still have a classic feel to them. I have to plug and shout out uh, a bunch of my friends that have some video game bands here. I have some friends that are in a band called The World is Square. Definitely check them out. They're kind of a jam band that does Square Enix music and covers. Uh, they've done a lot of great music and some from this game. And then I have a band that you've got to check out if you're into metal, Night of the Round. They do metal VGM covers and they do a lot of Final Fantasy stuff and they've done a lot of FF8. They did like a whole special FF8 at a MAGFest a few years ago and it was amazing. Definitely check them out. I'm sure they have a band camp and you can find songs on there and check out some of their FF8 music. But it's really cool that Final Fantasy especially uh, and the music especially has afforded a whole mini community like that to evolve. Uh, it... it kicks so much ass tears up so much ass it's so cool to hear that music and hold it in your heart and be able to listen to it in different iterations even now we're living in the future for sure i i understand that like the uh alienating way that this game plays uh, compared to a traditional final fantasy game pushes a lot of people out early on but you are missing mm -hmm. some of like the very best like stuff that this series has to offer and that's why it's probably worth it to go through this game with a guy just so you can see all the cool environments, all the cool backgrounds, all the cool uh, visual design stuff this game does, all of the cool music, uh, the little story beats that never really get replicated in any other 
story at the time because the thing I found really moving about this game as cheesy as you know an RPG can be is like the actual central dynamic between Squall and Renoa uh, or Renoa they don't have voice acting this game I'm, I'm shooting from the hip um, <laughs> they it's 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 really really sweet and compelling and it's melodramatic as hell for sure but it is also just like damn where else are you going to see this kind of thing yeah it's a little soap opera but I love it that is a big driving force I have uh, Renoa's wings from her duster. I have them tattooed on my back, actually. That was a choice I made at age 19. I still love it and I love the game, but as like a 30 year old, oh God, almost 31, I don't know if I would have done that because it's a pretty big, takes up a lot of real estate. So I don't know. I'm like, as a 31 year old, I don't know about that one. But, you know, YOLO, 19 years old, that's what you do back then. You love video games, you know, you everything is Renoa Hardilly and everything hurts. I loved her so much and she comes at a time that there, there's something interesting in media especially in the aughts uh, so a little after this but especially in the aughts where you have the 500 days of summer indie manic pixie dream girl kind of thing going on and i actually feel like she subverts a lot of that uh in in a lot of ways because squall never really idealizes her we all idealize her if that makes sense right um squall Oh, Squall. Oh, Squally, Squally, Squall, Squall. With his little emo-ness and his stubbornness and his all, I can't talk to people out loud. I have to be moody and broody inside. Um, he makes such a great romantic hero of the story because he's, you know, the the reluctant hero. He's like, I guess I have to do it to save everybody, but I really don't want to, but I'll do it. And of course, he falls in love with a spitfire, you know, woman, Renoa, who is like driven and ambitious and wants to fight for what's right and fight against what her dad stands for and fight for what's good. And of course she becomes the big hanging conflict, right? Where she becomes the weakness of the group that she is. I mean, Adea can take her over. Adea is going to take her over and be able to, you know, use her as a weapon. And that's such a, that whole scene with her and Squall, right? Where she's like, you'll, you'll do it though. Right. Like if she does this, if she takes my body over, like you'll you'll kill me if you have to. Right. That scene is so it's so like romantic, sad drama. You'll kill me, won't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's so many things that do the whole like when the minute comes, will you be able to do a thing? That's like super 1999, but also like very cool that this game does it. And like that interactive relationship that you're building uh, through squall being your pov character through this world makes it all the more intimate like uh there's a lot of stuff that you have to do towards the end that's just you and rinoa yeah it's really intimate and weird and yeah, good but like scary and i think that's a big part of the relationship too like it's a mm -hmm. uh, vulnerable and intimate like not intimate in a we're in love way but intimate in like a we have to do all this and the world in time and space is crumbling around us if we don't do it yeah if we don't get this job done together as a unit, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> that is a much better way of saying it. We are not talking about Squall and Renoa doing it. They do not do it that we see. <laughs> no, it's not a you have to fuck me or everything will get fucked sort of thing. Um, <laughs> different game, different series. Different game, different series. Um, you were talking about like the way that this uh, unique this relationship is. And I wanted to read this uh, tweet I had in my notes here from at Heads Fall Off from uh, October of two, 2021. Very funny to me that almost every Final Fantasy VII ship post, regardless ship as in like shipping post, regardless of the ship, has incredible trad energy. I don't know why. It's not like this with any other Final <laughs> Fantasy. 
Final Fantasy VII is too popular with the straights. And then the reply immediately underneath, nobody's out here posting housewife Renoa looking dreamily towards Squall because Final Fantasy VIII fans are all gay emos, parentheses complimentary. <laughs> wow, I've been very called out. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yeah, emo half gay. That is uh, That is how the game goes. It's not hot topic core. Okay, I don't want to say it's hot topic core, but there's something there's something like gothic in parts of it, right? There's mm-hmm. a little bit of gothic energy in parts of it in that like very sad star-crossed lover kind of way. I, I could see some of that drama coming through for the the gay emos and our representation in this game. The way that this game sort of stands out between uh, you know, other romances especially in RPGs at the time is that the whole central story is built around the romance um yes. I, you can argue that this is probably a very early example of a romance game because it is obviously a grand epic rpg that again has to be told in four discs but it is fundamentally a, a love story like the the, yeah. the central thing to for better or worse for the rest of your party is like it all comes back to these two characters and their ability to know each other and what they're willing to do for one another uh, by the end of it, because mm-hmm. it's 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 definitely a slow burn romance too, which definitely appeals to the uh, the gay yearning aspect of it. It's not the kind of thing where they're immediately into each other. And plot beats in video games like to move quickly; they don't like to live mm-hmm. in that amb- ambiguous space. But it takes Leon, uh-huh. uh, sorry, not Leon. It takes Squall a long time for him to warm up to other people, and there's a long time where he's almost resentful that he is doing stuff with this girl. Uh, and he doesn't know if how like sincere she's being or if she's just like treating him as like a big joke. You know, obviously the I can fix him trope, you know, you can look at it that way if you want to. But just the idea of like, I'm learning how to be there for other people and I'm learning not to be full of myself. I'm learning to get over everything. The characterization of people who are really reductive about Final Fantasy VII that they give to that Cloud. Cloud's a different thing. Cloud is a traumatized mm-hmm. baby boy who doesn't understand, who's like, who needs help in a different way. Leon is the emo boy who has to get over himself. Cloud is trying to get over the trauma of being a traumatized soldier. Le- Squall is actually like a person who is getting over personal hangups to accept love into his life. And that love is what guides him to the uh, the end game. Yeah. And I would say there's definitely a little rollover from Seven in the idea of soldier and that this is, you know, an academy that trains child soldiers, mm-hmm. right? Of all a- like different ages and genders, not just a uh, soldier, right? With just the spiky boys, but also with some of these guys. And, you know, you have other characters and how that affects them. I mean, Keistus's story is uh, interesting. You know, one thing I could do without in this game is poor Squall, how much he gets sexually harassed. But Kestis is, um, hers is very interesting, right? She ends up a leader and she gets taken out of leadership uh, because of what happens with Cypher on a mission and Squall. And she kind of feels like a, a burnout, a degenerate. Like she she was on a good path and then she got that taken away from her and now she's just normal. She's just a, a school soldier once more. I found that really interesting. This last go through, I really uh, found her plot a bit more interesting than I had before in the previous iterations though to your points too like once we get to the end it falls away and it's not about any of these other carrier characters like they're definitely a part of the story and they're important but i do love that your party is your party 
you know, the two people that are most important, and arguably then you can echo it to Laguna's subplot, it's the Squall and Renoa and how it all comes around because it's a time loop. Like the entire story is a time loop and we can talk about the end in a little while yeah. uh, some more. We'll, we should probably come back to it here for the end and talk about our final thoughts on the ending there. But it's yeah. uh, it's incredible. It's very um, screwy. Yeah. You're, you're touching on some points that I actually do have some critiques for in a second. So let's just jump into it. What is something or what are some things that you wish Final Fantasy VIII did better? I wish there was any sort of any sort of UI that gave you some hints as to what the hell to do, because the game can get a little repetitive without a task list or without any way of tracking your tasks. Uh it does get a little hard. Like I do really do have issues when I come back to the game. If I don't sit down and play it like consistently and I take a break break, I usually just start over. Like I, I see it straight up, just start this game all the time over and coming back to ADHD. Maybe there's some of that and that I'm just like, I, I'm too frustrated. I can't, I can't figure it out. I'm not going to tough it out. I'm just going to do it all over again. So I swear I've played the last two discs, maybe two times less than I've played the first two discs, you know, just because you know, when I get there, it's probably been like, I got to this time. I got through the whole game just for you again. But Thank I you. probably had played, well, it'd been probably five years since I had played it all the way through again. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm glad you got to revisit it. Uh, yeah. I, this is my first time playing it through ever. So we we're, we're both in this together. <laughs> yeah, it felt like the first time in a long time I, I was uh, feeling anew. But yeah, I would love for there to be any sort of uh, a little a little bit of elaboration in the game, in the UI, in what you see. And the tutorials are not helpful. And some of it is kind of fun to figure out on your own, but also not as an old person who has to work and do other things in their life, you know, like, and, and that's maybe that's personal. Maybe that's honestly how we consume media now in this yeah. day and age. Maybe that's part of it. But I just had a lot more time when I was like 10 years old to sit and screw around all day to figure out a game where some of it isn't as straightforward and should be more straightforward. Yeah, no, I was thinking about how last week I've watched every episode of part one of Naruto, including all those filler arcs. And that was yeah. only something I could have done when I was 12. I can't do that now. I cannot watch yeah. 200 plus episodes of anything over a sustained period of time. I beat this game in two weeks. And that was because I was taking January off so I could like catch up on the games that I had to play for this upcoming year. And thankfully, I did not like reach any uh, lulls or gaps where I had to like recalibrate yeah. and think, where the hell am I? But I also had a guide open uh, on one of my tabs on my phone. Uh, I was using Jagged, uh, which is yes. a, a highly popular website, but I think it's just one guy writing guides for these games. And it was extremely helpful, a lot more helpful than like a lot of official guides for, say, IGN or something in terms of like fully understanding the complicated mechanics of this uh, of this game. So shout out to whoever I recommend it. his magic tutorial for this game is amazing. I have read it. His junctioning tutorial is really helpful. Yeah. Shout out to Jagged. That's the, that's the guide you should use to understand this game, at least mechanically. This is it's almost like a classic like pen and paper thing where you sort of have to rem like make a note of the things that you need to remember builds uh, where you are in the game. If you need to like have little recaps, I think that would definitely help if you're the kind of person that walks away from a game for a week at a time and then has to come back to it and doesn't want to relearn everything. So highly recommend just taking something like a little notes app thing, anything. I feel bad because I'm not trying to say it's like homework, but at mm -mm. the same time, again, coming back to where we are in this day and age in video games, like it's so easy to download a game that tells you everything 
And this is a fulfilling game. It just takes a little extra bile for that uh, just because of its time and its stature. Honestly, you're saying some really smart things about maybe writing a note for yourself. Chloe, you dumb bitch. I'm like, wow, I have a phone. I have Samsung notes. What am I doing wrong, Kiefer? Oh, my God. I mean, it maybe that I just came off of Elden Ring last year where I did have to write things down a little bit to make sure that See? I had everything. So I'm maybe I'm training myself in uh, going back to these old RPGs. But you're no, training I, me for going to Elden Ring. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> that's, it's a deliberately esoteric game. And that's that, yeah. that's the core part of it. And don't be afraid to use guys for it either. Don't don't listen to the get good people. A guy can help. And I hope that nobody's being discouraged by our, us saying that there is like a little extra work you may need to do to fully appreciate this game. I'm trying to my my attempt here is to de-stigmatize the idea of having to do these things. I I yeah. like that you have to do it and it's rewarding and it's easier for you to do it. Part of it is a failure on the game to communicate information to you. Absolutely. But there are people who are doing their best to make sure that you don't miss on the core experience of this game that is really well done. So shout out to the people like Jagged who are doing, you know, God's work and making this game a lot more bearable. (laughs) And I really hope that if you do play this game, which you should, I highly recommend it, that when you do it, you get the best experience out of it possible. Yeah. And that's my core issue with the game, to your point about the tutorializing not being the best. Because I don't want to position the gameplay itself as a flaw because it did grow on me. But... I will criticize the game and how it tries to teach you about them because these tutorials are not decent enough and don't help you understand how significant these changes are in terms of gameplay. For example, in most RPGs, you earn money by defeating enemies. Uh, This game doesn't do that. This is the first time in a video game I've ever experienced where your player earns a salary. (laughs) It's weird. It's great. Which is like, it is cool in terms of making the whole, like, you are a member of, you have a job, this is your job that you're doing, that Seed is a place that pays their soldiers a salary and they don't have to just loot everybody to stay fed. (laughs) Storytelling. (laughs) Like, I understand that in terms of, like, making the gameplay match what is happening in a narrative. But the game doesn't do the best job in terms of letting you know that you are earning money on a salary basis. So when you go to a shop, you're, you're basically like, I can't afford a fucking thing. What the fuck is going on here? It does take a little bit. You need a couple missions before you can actually buy things. The game doesn't tell you what the fuck the deal is with your salary or the interval intervals that you earn them in. <laughs> the salary is based off of your rank, which can be easily raised by taking the tests that are hidden in a menu in the pause menu that you can just take whenever. And every time you level up, you can take another quiz. <laughs> And those quizzes will greatly boost your rank and greatly boost the amount of money that you make periodically. So you, there will be a point in the game where you aren't hurting for money and you can just sort of buy whatever you need from a store. So look up a guide that's like things you need to know before you play this game because they will make the early game so much more bearable, such as the money situation. Yeah, piggybacking on that, it's also a little frustrating the lack of explanation for the weapons system. Uh, the upgrading of the weapons, I feel like they also lay that one on the table real quietly. And they're like, all right, good luck, bye. Uh, So like, you know, not understanding how to actually use the things that you get from loot or from, you know, uh, the actual store to put on your weapons and whether they do anything or not to help you. That was frustrating to figure out at first. Yeah, and this ties back to Triple Triad, which does sort of become like a a semi-essential thing you will have to play to get the best items to upgrade your weapons because you can convert the cards that you earn from battle into 
synthesizable items that make your weapon stronger or give you more casts for a spell or enhance the strength of your spell or your GF or something. And that's the difference between like playing the game well and thriving in the game. So you will have to do triple triad to sort of game that system a little bit and gain certain cards. And the game doesn't teach you that. There's like certain little side quests regarding triple triad that you have to do. Uh, there's actually like in order to gain some of the best cards and some of the best synthesis stuff, you have to lose specific games and have specific cards taken from you or traded. And then you have to earn better cards from those people. And then eventually you get that card you lost from one battle back from playing another battle. It's very, very, very esoteric in terms of presentation. So <laughs> you have to know to do that. And on another thing this game doesn't teach you is when you go from one city or continent to another, you bring the rules from Triple Triad with you to those other places and they sort of compound into some gobbledygook that make winning virtually impossible or extremely difficult because it's like, oh, we're here. We uh, have elemental tiles that boost the, uh, the 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 elemental powers of fire-based It's card. so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> I'm just like, fuck off with that. Fuck off. I don't want to do that rule. Or some other thing where it's like uh, weird, stupid rules in terms of how they change the very compelling basic core gameplay. Like the core gameplay is fine. You don't need to keep stacking rules on top of it. And there's actually a way to undo those rules. And the game doesn't tell you that. And it has to like involve you talking to one NPC five times in a hotel and then saving and reloading the game, talking to that person again. And it just like soft resets the rules when you go back to those continents and have to play the game. And it's so messed up that that's just like one little thing that you have to do to make one, not fundamental, but one extremely important mechanic of the game remotely playable. And like I said, Triple Triad is one of my favorite parts of this game, but is also one of the worst if you don't know what you're doing. It's weird how much is like located in that. Like that is a complex ass part of the game and it should not mean as much as it does. But yet, like if you're going to have if you're going to have something mean that much in a game and like affect the game that much, it should be a little more accessible, I think. That's all. Yeah. And thankfully there are in-game fixes for it, but again, they're so bizarre and how they're done that if you didn't have a guide there would be no way for you to figure that out and that's why i'm encouraging anybody who wants to play this game to play it with a guide because it makes the game go from what the fuck hard to normal amount of hard for an rpg i would say even if you don't do a walkthrough necessarily i highly encourage you to do a junctioning and magic guide and do a guide for the triad because it, it's you're not gonna it's gonna take a minute and it'll just make your life easier yeah it's not like how pazak and uh knights of the old republic is space 21 or how uh gwent is pretty self-explanatory <laughs> yeah. they do so much to you know make gwent understandable to you because it's a number go up kind of game but mm -hmm. it's not that in triple triad there's like rules on top of rules and once you understand those rules it's fun it's great i love it when the rules keep being switched up on you because you keep going to different cities and it becomes a problem but I actually want to play Final Fantasy XIV simply because I found out Gwent is in it. That's how hard in a pain I am for uh, not Gwent, Triple Triad. I haven't played it yet, and I want to for the same reason, just because of that. And I want to see what they've enhanced and what they've fixed maybe about that. Yeah, I would love to see that. And it's funny because when I think of mini games or side games, I think of like Chocobo side games, right? Uh, lots of different Chocobo side games or like... 
Uh, Chocobo racing is a fun one, for example, and it's pretty straightforward. Or, uh, you know, when you get quests for mapping way and naming way and such, uh, those little side things, they're explainable. They're, they're very direct, but Triad is not so direct. Yeah, I, I agree. We're talking about the legacy of this game in terms of it being in Final Fantasy XIV in one specific way with the Triple Triad. Another thing about this game is like I've been aware of it for years through uh, the Kingdom Hearts series, which is a series that I love and obviously has its own like complicated stuff about it. What is your relationship like with uh, Kingdom Hearts since uh, Squall, who is called Leon in Kingdom Hearts for some reason, uh, a major character in these games? Yeah, I played the first one uh, in the PS2 era. I played it when it was out. And then I've played the second and third. I haven't finished the third. I think I finished the second. Uh, I, I liked it well enough. It was never a series that I loved, loved. I actually played it a lot at my best friend's house. So we would go back and forth and take turns. My husband, or sometimes on my podcast, we like to call him my roommate or that guy I live with. Mm -hmm. uh, but my husband got into a big Kingdom Hearts replay era last year. So the Traverse Town theme triggers me hair wild like if i hear it i ai will get it stuck in my head for a whole week so you, if you're around me all you'll hear is Boo, do, 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 do. it'll mm -hmm. just be me singing that over and over or it'll be me doing it through gritted teeth because i'm gonna die because it's so annoying i just like have nights where he fell asleep i think playing it and i just remember hearing it over and over and over but I like it well enough. I didn't have a connection connection with it, though. Uh, it was never a game that I wanted to replay all the time. I liked it enough, and I liked the main plot with Kyrie and Sora and what's the other one? What's Riku. The, Riku, the Targaryen one. Thank you. That one. <laughs> yeah, not to be mistaken for Riku from Final Fantasy X-2. Yeah, and Ten. yeah. Yeah, who is a character in Kingdom Hearts 2 very briefly, so that also... Yes. Yeah, the representation of Final Fantasy VIII in these games is weird because Leon is like the main presence. Squall is the main presence of Final Fantasy VIII and everybody else is mainly from Final Fantasy VII. But like Cypher will show up in Kingdom Hearts II as like a bully that Roxas will have to fight very briefly. But like Renoa like was like somebody was asking like, why is like the most central character of Final Fantasy VIII not in uh, Kingdom Hearts? And Namora gave the worst answer you could possibly yeah. give, which was like, I don't really know what her personality is. I don't really know what her deal is. And I'm like, dude, you don't say that. You don't say that about a game, a character in a game that you help make, which makes sense because a lot of his like personalities for all of his Final Fantasy characters are weird. The characterization for Cloud isn't quite like the characterization for Cloud. Or, mm -hmm. you know, Aerith is also very timid and not as, like, headstrong in um, the Kingdom Hearts games. Which is why it's a miracle that 7 Remake is as good as it is. But yeah, I can, argue, I can see why some people would regard these as, like, kind of character assassination for especially the women of these games. But... Um, yes, it's Cypher. Selfie is one of your friends on the island at the mm -hmm. beginning of Kingdom Hearts 1. Uh, and then uh, Le uh, Squall as Leon. So Him and all his belts. Here he yeah. is. He has a lot of belts in this game too, though. He's protecting yeah. his virginity from this, this Renoa girl. Well, you know her and her wild personality that no one knows. <laughs> well, I, 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 I have a good grasp on her character as a person who played the game once. Uh -huh. 
I felt a pretty strong grasp on her character. Absolutely. Actually, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of how to fix that plot so easily for Kingdom Hearts. Like, Squall failed to do something to, you know, for Renoa, and she got stuck somewhere, and now he feels like he's, you know, like, there you go, boom. Then you go unlock her at some point. Howdy do. Shake hands. You got her back. Congrats. Now we Whatever. squall again. There you go. There you go. I fixed it. You're welcome. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy. You get the central romance. You get to see that happen. Yada, yada, yada. going back to another mild criticism I have about eight is that the character work for the non Laguna and rain and uh, Renoa and Leon it's it's not as great I find that Zell is just kind of like a nothing character for example and he's kind of there from the beginning selfie is very much like a I like trains and I'm really good at flying things and that's kind of the extent of it mm-hmm there is a lot to these characters. They're very broad and they're interesting and their shared history is really what makes it kind of tie together. But that shared history of them all being from the same orphanage and that's why they're all child soldiers together despite being so different uh, also sort of takes away like them having more uh, interesting backgrounds. Um, the character who really had a really good chance of being like an all-timer Final Fantasy character and then the game just kind of forgets about her in favor like the Renoa stuff is Kistis. Yeah. Who you were talking about earlier uh like she has a really compelling early on storyline uh she is an 18 year old basically teaching 17 year olds how to do their job and she feels like a failure even though she just became an adult and that she has to be this adult presence but really everybody is like one year younger than her and she cannot be an authority because she shouldn't have to be an authority and this kind of like child soldier thing isn't the best way of maybe doling out protection for the society and it doesn't really fully explore that dynamic because like she has like uh, a lot of emotional feelings towards squall that she kind of perceives as love but accepts that it's just kind of like a weird projection not projection necessarily but like just like a lot of her feelings about how she feels about the people around her and she's putting it on squall a little bit and then squall's just kind of like what oh hey renoa <laughs> um, yeah and then we don't come back to it. Like you're absolutely right. Kesis gets no, like that's something that I would, I would die to have a remake because you look at FF seven and some of the things they're already starting to cover and little side stories are taking you down. I mean, even just the exploration of Midgar, uh, I really, I really enjoyed that so far. And I would love to see that kind of thing for these characters and where each one of your characters has a little backstory quest to go on. Like mm-hmm. Irvine shows up and then immediately they couple selfie and irvine up and to be fair uh going back to like ff4 with ridia and edge uh after years puts them basically together is kind of what happens and it's a similar kind of thing where i do think that once you couple a couple of those characters off you lose story for each of them because they're lost with just and there's irvine and selfie yeah that's yeah. kind of it. Like there's a, like a lot of interesting texture to Irvine, like how he's not like how he's a sniper who's unable to take the shot at the most critical moment. Those kinds of details mm-hmm. are just really fascinating because they're all kids. They're all kids. And like, I love the whole like, hold on, holy shit. These are actually kids that are carrying out these tasks. Avatar The Last Airbender does it really, really well. And it's just kind of like a thing that this show, like the game kind of 
moves aside because they got to worry about time compression as a concept and really drive home the Leon and Reno relationship, which, hey, it does land those planes, but it does kind of feel like we left one at the airport. Yeah. And falling off the side party characters, I mean, it's fine. It, it is what it is. Uh, you just don't have that great, like you have the the connection with the children, for example, back in FF7, you have Marlene, you have Barrett, you have all these connections going on that make you feel drawn to the game as a big family. And I think that the way that the moments for the politics and the different things happening in FF8 happen, it was coming so close to almost making that moment, but the story wasn't about all of them, I guess, in the end. It, they really wanted to land the Squinoa. That's the ship name, Kiefer. Keep up. <laughs> Squinoa. And that's fine. I, I think at least they nailed that because that la- the last two discs are just like trippy. They're very trippy. And a- as you kind of pummel to the time compression in the end of the story, um, it- at least Renoa does get her moments too, right? Like they didn't dick Renoa over, which is good. Mm-hmm. That would be my biggest, like, because that's already, like, there's so many easy moments that can go wrong in plot telling and storytelling with Squall and Renoa, because uh, her character is kind of, like, very, can be abrasive, right? Can be a little abrasive. Uh, she throws her dog interface. at people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Angelo's a good boy and all, but that is a little abrasive. You know, ask dog consent. Some people might not be ready for that, Renoa. He seems to be ready to throw down, though. Angelo seems fine being a rocket. Yeah, no, like I said, I do think the Renoa stuff is ultimately great. And that scene, like everything when they're in outer space together and like they're have that emotional climax together where he, you know, she is ultimately being used for the thing that they were all worried about her being uh, possessed by the final, final boss of the game, Ultimessia. That does happen and it does end up causing a lot of problems for the moon base and it does create the... uh, the borderline apocalypse of like that very striking image of basically every demon and monster in the world that was sealed away on the moon, uh, World War Zing themselves across from the moon all the way to the earth to wreak havoc on uh, that underground uh, society that you find out about uh, a little over halfway into the game that ties back into the Laguna storyline that becomes a huge. Uh, emotional moment for uh, Squall storyline because it, again, it may or may not be his uh, father. It's all this like, like very dramatic, like you said, soap opera, space opera stuff that's happening. And I understand, like, hey, this is a game in 1999. We don't really have. We can either focus on landing this central relationship and having these big sweeping moments and striking images, or we can give each individual character in your party a side quest that makes you like them a little bit more. And that's, like you said, where a remake would benefit from texturing these characters a little bit more like they're textured in Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, it's ultimately a Ragnarok, right? You have the Ragnarok model spaceships, but it is a Ragnarok that all of these villains were held with a spell and now unleashed. Uh, And what's so great about this pivotal moment is as Renoa is floating, you know, in space and Squall catches up to save her, right? As she's abandoned, her body's been thrown out into space and he finally catches up to her side by side you're getting that emotional reveal finally of the orphanage and of what Laguna's plans had been right to return Eleni to Windhill and where it got messed up where everything got messed up with the orphanage as we get to kind of the time compression of the ending right Ultimicia's plan is to absorb all time space and existence within herself merging it becoming this huge deity 
uh, and she it's too much like the link that binds all of the party which again would love that link to mean more for several members but that's okay but the link that bonds them ends up saving them she can't overcome it and she collapses in an explosion across space and Squall slipping into nothing and Renoa actually like Renoa brings him out of the nothing and of that time compression of that loop and there's something amazing about that ending in that it's the whole game itself is about choice and free will right like you look at the timber owls and where we meet Renoa in the front and where we meet Squall and that he didn't have a choice right he grew up in the orphanage which funneled him immediately to this child soldier program I don't have to explain how fucked up that is America has some fucked up shit with foster homes that people get too much power or a little bit of money and it becomes corrupt and there's a little bit of that happening here in this story Uh, it becomes free will, right? There's a constantly happening compressed space and time event. And in that kind of event, there is no free will. There is no choice. Every single moment in kind of a meta way that the characters have been fighting doesn't mean anything. Everything you've done up until this disc means nothing because everything is happening everywhere all at once at the same time. And it becomes a time loop because you end with Ultimicia and Squall getting sent back basically to Adea's house where we get the vision of Adea's house. Adea gets Ultimicia's powers. Squall tells her to create seed and the game can begin. It brings you right back to the beginning. You get the great ending where everyone is happy, right? You get the Squall and Renoa kiss on the balcony. It's so cute. But ultimately, the game ends so you can do it all over again. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing because it is very much in the service of everything that the narrative does is represented in some way in the gameplay. How Seed functions as a salary-paying military force, and that how, that's how you make your money. The, the GF junctioning being your vessel through which you can perform magic and establishing the sorceresses as a unique presence because they're able to use magic without needing these uh, memory-wiping uh, guardian forces uh, that you know, affect how you think and how fucked up it is that these kids have to use these memory wiping magic spells to be able to, you know, use magic because it kind of weakens their bonds with one another because they're forgetting that they know each other. The reason that the plot twist with the all of them being from the same orphanage works is because like they forgot it because they've been using these guardian forces while they're going through this military training program and leon ultimately has to recreate that trauma himself at the beginning to be able to like he has to create the loop and also close it at the same time he has to make sure that like yeah we have to suffer i have to go back in time and make myself suffer and lose all of that but i also have to make sure that um it happens because if i don't endure all of that then i lose renoa i lose the people that i ultimately end up saving and protecting it's a lot it's it's heavy and it is kind of a lot to parse through. It's uh, almost uh, Evangelion rejecting the uh, the Evangelion rejecting the instrumentality stuff. It's uh it's, it's it's very heavy, but like when you make sense of it in terms of like how that literally is like you have to play the events of the game again to get this happy ending, like you describe very very well. It 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 works. Yeah, um, there's a little gimmickness in it in that like it, it's got that whole like you know, the mindfuck quality of like, oh, and that's what brought us to the beginning of the game. Who, 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 can you believe it? That was Final Fantasy VIII. Wow, let's do it again. Let's do the ride again. Like, it's cute in a way, though, so I don't mind that. Uh, but it's what makes the intro to Final Fantasy VIII so goddamn amazing because when you finish the game and then when you go back and rewatch it, 
you have that beautiful waves crashing on the ocean. I'll be waiting for you. If you come here, you'll find me. I promise. Just like the most, like a very sad feeling before Liberi Fatali starts, right? Like you get that very like melancholic feeling of like, oh, what kind of game am I getting into? And you get the entire intro and it shows a bunch of stuff and it can be a little confusing. But then once you finish the entire game, that intro is so good. Like it's so uh, rewarding. It's so satisfying to watch. Like it sets the tone for the whole game, especially once you've played it once. I don't know. I recommend rewatching the whole intro because I think just rewatching it once you finish the game, it feels really crazy and sad and beautiful. I'll, I'll definitely do that. Thank you for introducing me to this game. Uh, I really loved playing it. And so much of it is worth the complications it takes to like get through it, whether that is, you know, having to figure out how junctioning even works, uh, how to make money, uh, how to game the triple triad system. So you're not playing every rule at once from every country (laughs) and basically guaranteeing a loss. And then the Laguna thing, which ends up justifying itself when you really understand like who Laguna is and what his place is in the story it all justifies itself with a really good presentation, really good art design, really good music, and just a really ambitious story about love and the things that the things that it makes us do and the things that makes life worth living. It rejects the idea that like choosing to save the world and saving the one you love are incompatible ideas. They are compatible ideas. Like it's that love that ultimately makes them strong enough to forge the bond to defeat the villain. I don't know. There's so much that this game does. And obviously we don't have the time to discuss every single good thing this game does. That would take hours upon hours to do. And we can scrutinize every decision that it makes to get to that point. But I ultimately think it does very well as a video game. What are your final thoughts? Yeah, I love what you've said about the overall like because of the forgetting, right? Because they've been forgetting because of the magic they're using because of the GFs. It makes every single action that much harder and more important, right? It means that the work that you do for love and the work that you do to save the world, that's the important part every single day, right? That you have to keep working at it or else you won't get it. Uh, And I think it's a really beautiful story. And I think that FF8 in general has such a nice big, I mean, there are fan theories, you know, there are a lot of fan theories throughout lots of Final Fantasy games, but I mean, people for ages were writing essays about how Squall dies in disc two and three and four are from his, this is squallsdead.com. I'm not kidding. Look it up. (laughs) But uh, it's that big of a fan theory and it's totally, Kitase uh, rejected it and laughed about it, but it's an interesting idea thinking about it. Like from that angle, you can take the story and you can take certain elements and certain lenses and you can apply that to the story and find something new about it every single time. Uh, there were heavy theories back in the day that Renoa was Ultimicia, probably because of the time travel stuff, which it doesn't work out. It absolutely doesn't work out. But it's moreover parallels, right? That Renoa could go down that path if something happened. Uh, it, it would be also giving her a terrifying and unsettling ending where Kitase didn't want that. He wanted Renoa to have a good ending because she worked very hard for the game. He didn't want to punish her. Uh, he didn't want to Aerith her. He didn't want her to get a belly button piercing, you know, um, so to speak. And I think 
one of the best parts of the game does come back to the Laguna story, folding it in, and that, look, people can say it's a theory that Laguna is Squall's father, but, like, if you replay this game, Kiefer, that that's all the there. point. Like, it's telling you. The whole story is telling you. So when that huge flip comes, when you learn they all grew up together and they forgot, when you see Laguna and the orphanage and all of these flashes, that's your answer. It's the story itself is showing instead of telling in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think that makes it not just in that way, but in the gameplay. As we've talked about, we've had our gripes with the UI and gripes with the gameplay and gripes with things that are not in the game to tell us what to do. But that's also part of it. The game shows you instead of tells. And sometimes that's a weak spot for the game, but in the storytelling and as you travel through the open world, I think it's a really beautiful way to unfold a game. Yeah, and I really appreciate you saying all that. You have a longer history with this game than I do, and you've had a lot of time to reflect on all these points. And if this game works for you, it definitely does work for you. So I really appreciate you giving me this perspective on this very unique, very singular, very complex uh, game that gave me a lot to chew on in just like the couple of months since I've played it and 20 or so years since you've played it. I mean, you have it tattooed on your body. Like even if you think that that is a bit of an extreme choice now, it was one that you believed in heavily at the time. Yeah. And we're talking about the game today, so... You can't say that it hasn't stuck with you in the years since. Oh, it's stuck with me. It's still there. <laughs> it's still there. No, absolutely. Uh, and I don't regret it. I mean, I made a choice at the time. I stick by it. But I just am like now as an adult, I'm like, maybe I could have made them smaller. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a big space. That's a very like tattoo wise, your back, like eight by 10 on your back. That's a pretty big space to just go ahead and give away to Renoa Hardily. So I hope yeah. that fictionally she understands that. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, I, here's the thing. It's ambitious of you to do that. And it's a lot of space. And that was probably very painful to get done at the time. But you were committed. And yep. hey, listen, what is this game if not about enduring pain for the for the sake of others? In and out of the game. Yes, it is a commitment on your part as well. I, I like the fact that you have a big tattoo on your back for this game. That That shows me that you are the best candidate ever in the world to talk about <laughs> Final Fantasy VIII. And I'm glad that this is the first Final Fantasy game I've talked about on the show. So obviously you've talked about how this game has made an impact on you. Do you think that this game made an impact on the way that you like seek out media or anything like that? Actually, yeah, probably. It probably answers a lot of questions now that you say it out loud. Thanks. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Lots to ponder on that. Uh, but I am, I mean, as far as like movies, for example, I love a good dramatic, sad, actiony kind of movie. I am a hopeless like romance kind of person. Not like I'm not into romance movies or romance novel movies necessarily, but I like a, a good, great, big, sad, em- enveloped in layers of you know mystery and plot, and put behind beautiful backgrounds and sets and pieces and costuming. And this does it. You know, uh, and going back to earlier, maybe it's that emo gayness of it all. That's the aughts and the 90s. They really had that stranglehold on that. But even movie wise and music wise, I mean, I just like stuff that reeks of feeling and emotion. Right. I, uh, I I loved, especially when it came out, I loved stuff like Eternal Sunshine, um, you know, Garden State, God. Uh, I was very into movies like that when they first were on the scene and that was definitely something in my teens, especially that I was into, right? Like I've graduated in a few ways, but I, I think it speaks volumes of the media I now seek out and how I interpret some media and some video games. I don't play a lot of RPGs anymore. And 
why I have the ones I need, honestly. I have a lot of a lot of them, but I don't play a lot of new ones. And I'm sure there are good ones out there I could probably check out, but I've got my trusty old FF8 and FF4. <laughs> Well, there you go. I really appreciate that thoughtful answer. And to that end, uh, at the end of every episode, I like to have my guests recommend some media that they like that ties back to the game that we talked about today. Uh, you've already recommended a few things, like uh, those those music artists that you shouted out earlier. Are there any other recommendations you have for people who enjoyed Final Fantasy VIII or that tie back to your enjoyment of Final Fantasy VIII? Yeah, a couple things I definitely recommend that shaped my teens and 20s, especially based off of this, would be, uh, I would go with Doctor Who is definitely up there, the new series. There's a lot of timey-wimey space travel, love. Uh, Ninth Doctor has some great stuff, 10th, 11th. Those are my three faves for sure of the newer series. I haven't caught up with a lot of the rest. I like 12, uh, but I haven't tuned in for the newer Doctors since 12. But it has a lot of the sci-fi weirdness mixed with we have to save the entire day and then versus we have to save the one we love or saving all of humanity in the galaxy versus saving the one you love. And some of those uh, very rough choices, there's actually an episode in series five with the 11th Doctor and his companions, Amy Pond and Rory Williams. And there's an episode that is uh, they're stuck in a dream in a time loop basically in a dream and someone's messing with their dreams and there's kind of a manifestation of their worst thoughts that come out during it and uh it's really wild it's uh they they fix it in the end the the main character one of them realizes that it's a dream because of something that happened and ends the dream and does something to end it to bring them all back to everything uh that is very dangerous and they would die were it not a dream so kind of some really crazy timey-wimey stuff going on. I also think if you haven't watched Battlestar, um, Battlestar has a lot of similar vibes in some ways emotionally. Uh, Like if you took them and put them on a spaceship instead as soldiers, that's what they kind of would be. It would be Battlestar Galactica. Uh, For its time, it's definitely very much of its time. Like there's a lot of stuff politically that I'm like, oh, yep, I know when this is from. Uh, But I, I really highly recommend it. Uh, anything that makes you cry at a main character possibly dying or, you know, being in a time loop space blip gets me going. And then the other thing that is newer to my repertoire, uh, and I don't know how I didn't watch this, I, I just like missed it, is the Before Trilogy by Richard Linklater. Uh, I highly recommend that. Yeah, that is if you want to get real sad about life and everything and what it means and like, but also it, it, it's a good sad in the end, right? It's that fulfilling sad. I think that is a trilogy of movies I would recommend. Yes, absolutely agree. I just finished watching Before Midnight last week uh, as uh-huh. of the time of recording. Uh, and God, all three movies hurt and heal in completely different ways. And if that is not love across time, I don't know what is. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, perfect recommendation for this kind of game. I can't believe I didn't occur to me because I'm literally still ruminating on it. <laughs> um, it but- hurts. It's like hurtful. Ugh. It hurts, but it's also healing. It's very a good hurt. Very good, uh, very good trilogy. Really quickly, I only have two recommendations uh, for listeners today, uh, both movies. Uh, the first one being Arrival, the 2016 movie starring Amy Adams. Yes. Definitely uh, like Final Fantasy VIII. It's a science fiction story, uh, but there is the fundamental through line of this being the choice to choose love across time, uh, knowing Something will hurt you eventually, but choosing to go through with that choice anyway, 
because you know that the love you feel will be greater than the pain that you will endure. Very powerful and very moving. And if you haven't seen it already, definitely check out Arrival. Also, because of the presence of Fei Wong as the pop star from Hong Kong who sings the game's love song between Leon and Renoa during the climactic moment where it's just the two of them together on the, is it the Ragnarok? That's the name of the ship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the first time the song plays in its full lyrics as it pops in as a motif throughout the game. Uh, when that song plays, it's a very moving and very emotional moment. And Fei Wong is an actress in the romance film from Hong Kong, Chungking Express, which is possibly one of, if not my favorite film ever. Please check it out off of the, the strength of that alone. Like It also is a very romantic film. It's also a very weird film. Uh, it is all over the place. Uh, Faye's character in the movie is also named Faye. And I think that that's very fun because this is like one of the biggest pop stars in the world choosing to play a very strange character and putting her full name on it. Respect, respect. It's great. That's that's the that's the mark that she made on my life. And I, I enjoy it quite a bit. So definitely check out Chunking Express and Arrival. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on my show. It really means a lot that you would come here and talk about a game that means so much to you and be so vulnerable about it. Please, before you leave, promote the hell out of yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kiefer. We got to get you on the Song of Ice and Fire series. Uh, I think it's got to happen for you, for sure. <laughs> or on His Dark Materials. There's some His Dark Materials stuff kind of happening here, too. So uh, please come check out Girls Gone Canon, where we are covering a Song of Ice and Fire POV by POV character throughout the series in a linear way. And, of course, where we've covered the His Dark Materials trilogy, part of the Outer Trilogy. We're continuing on with that this summer. And some other bits of shows and games and etc. Uh, you can find us on a podcast platform near you. Just search Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Or you can check us out over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where we have tons of little perks for patrons in various tiers. There's a Discord server, all that good stuff. Tons to look at. So, please check it out and you can find me i guess on twitter at lies and arbor l-i-e-s-a-n-d-a-r-b-o-r fantastic thank you chloe once again for coming on please check out her podcast please check her out on twitter thank you again for coming on to the show and thank you so much for listening to this episode of select and start once again i'm your host editor and promoter Kiefer. if you enjoyed this episode please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this Engagement helps the show and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Final Fantasy VIII or any other games we've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. You can also follow me at Vegito on Twitter and find links to the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. The art for the show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as Chloe's. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more on moonshotpods.com. All right, I think that's it. I'll be waiting for you. If you come here, you'll find me. I promise.